You're listening to the Journal of Arthroplasties, The Cut, part of Ocus Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach. Hello, and welcome to Journal of Arthroplasties, The Cut. My name is Kevin Wise, and I'm a fourth-year resident from Detroit, Michigan. I'm Kim Tucker, and I'm from Tucson, Arizona. And I'm Brock Howell, and I'm in Montgomery, Alabama. On this episode, we'll be discussing several recent articles published in the Journal of Arthroplasty regarding the hip-spine relationship, which is a hot topic. We are excited that joining us on this episode will be Dr. Jonathan Vigdorchik and Dr. Nate Heckman. Dr. Vigdorchik completed his medical school training at University of Missouri, followed by his residency at Detroit Medical Center and fellowship at a hospital for special surgery, where he is now on staff. Dr. Vigdorchik, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, everyone. Pleasure to be here. We're also joined by Dr. Nate Heckman. Dr. Heckman attended medical school at the University of California, Irvine, and completed his residency training at the University of Southern California Medical Center, followed by a fellowship at Rush Medical Center. He is now on staff at the USC Medical Center. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Heckman. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. So first, Kim was going to introduce to us our first hip spine topic. Sounds good. Thanks for being here with us, you guys. So this paper is out of Brown, and it's called Risk of Dislocation and Revision Following Primary Total Hip Arthroplasty in Patients with Prior Lumbar Fusion with Spinopelvic Fixation. They used Pearl Diver to identify patients greater than 30 years old who had a total hip arthroplasty alone with prior single-level fusion, prior two-to-five-level fusion, or with prior fusion with spinopelvic fixation. They found that at two years, 4.2% of patients with single-level fusion had had a dislocation, 4.7% with two-to-five-level fusions had had a dislocation, and 7.8% had dislocated with spinopelvic fusion. Their take-home was that patients with spinopelvic fusion had a greater than 3.5-fold increased risk of hip dislocation than patients without any fusion, and greater than two-fold increase in risk when compared to those with fusion not including the pelvis. In this paper, they comment that proceeding with a total hip replacement in this population requires surgeons to, in quotes, better evaluate functional hip position and determine specific functional safe zone. So I was hoping that you guys could go through how you determine this specific functional safe zone that they mentioned. And if you could break that down for our listeners, that'd be really helpful. Sure, I can jump in on that one. It starts with getting the right x-rays, right? First, we need to decide if we're going to get an AP pelvis, whether that's going to be a supine AP pelvis or a standing AP pelvis. And then you need some hip spine type of x-rays, right? Either a standing lateral or a sitting lateral. Now, Nate, do you do this on every patient? I get this on every single one of my patients. Standing lateral x-ray, sitting lateral x-ray shows the hip and the spine. Yeah, John, I do standing and relaxed seated lateral on every uh, patient. And I also get a standing AP as well. Perfect. So once you have those images, you can actually make some measurements on the images. You can look at the sacrum and how that changes from one x-ray to the next, from the standing to the relaxed sitting. And I think a little bit later in this, we're going to talk about relaxed versus flex sitting x-rays for sure. But that's one measurement, right? Sacral slope, standing to sitting. How does that change? And the second thing we're going to look at is really where is the pelvis? Where is that anterior pelvic plane? Because that's going to show us what that pelvic tilt is and how that's going to change our cup position. 
Can you give us a little bit of guidance with regards to getting these x-rays? Because you guys are at big orthopedic centers and not all of our listeners are going to be at those kind of centers. Can you share with us how you have taught your rad techs how to take these in this situation? Yeah, Jonathan, I, th- I think I'll answer and I think you and I probably should both answer because we probably have different experiences because to some extent, the x-rays that I use today are done for logistical reasons. And, you know, I think we're going to get into this in more detail with one of the papers we're talking about later. But one of the challenges is for techs that are not familiar with these shots is having them being able to reproducibly radiograph the anatomy of interest. And for us, we found that it was very hard to capture the upper lumbar segments in some x-rays that capture a meaningful portion of the femur. And so we made a trade-off pretty early to capture the femur uh, at the expense of not really capturing radiographically the upper lumbar segments. But, you know, essentially it was a relatively easy learning curve. Once we came to the decision of what x-rays we wanted, and it was only about a 15 to 20 patient learning curve for our techs. Now that it's done universally, it actually adds very little time to the intake process. How much time does that add in your clinic? uh, About five to seven minutes. So it's two additional views. You know, we do a standing AP of the pelvis for templating, and then we just turn them lateral. So that first of the two additional views takes very little additional time. And then the sitting view has been standardized. So it's not cost and time prohibitive at our R center. So are you doing this? Is it pre-op for every patient or pre-visit on every new patient? Because for me, it I don't get these on my new patient visits at all. This is a when they go for pre-surgical testing, they're getting their chest x-ray. They'll get their spine imaging at the same time they get their chest x-ray. So it doesn't have any influence on my clinic times at all. But if not everybody's going to the hospital for pre-surgical testing, um, you know, then you need to figure out how to get it on, whether it's after your visit, after you indicate them or what. So there are some logistical challenges uh, depending on each person's practice scenario. You know. Yeah, John, I get it as part of my new patient x-rays. Got it. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think our experience is actually pretty similar. We get a standing lateral x-ray. It's very similar to what the techs are trained in a false profile. False yeah. profile is 60 degrees standing. This is just a 90 degree standing lateral directly. In order to get more of the lumbar spine, you know, they can use a longer, you know, 36 inch, you know, x-ray plate instead of a regular one if they have that available. Cause then you get L1 down. It really depends on what you need. What you were saying, Nate, I think is you prioritize the sacrum and the femur, uh, especially in that sitting x-ray. So that's fine. That, that's all you need really to make the majority of these measurements. So I think given all the papers that you guys have been writing and your colleagues too, this seems, I guess, now obvious that this may happen, that the dislocation rate would go up, especially if the pelvis is fused to the spine. But how are we supposed to approach this from an actionable level in our daily practices? Like, how do you see this for us? You know, I'll, I'll kind of give it a, a relatively agnostic view. And I know, I think John's going to jump right in with maybe some more specifics. But, you know, I, I think if nothing more, the study by Yang and colleagues, you know, just helps the average orthopedic surgeon identify a phenotype that is potentially higher risk. I think we'll get into some more details about what that means specifically for some of these subtypes. But I think if the orthopedic surgeon is alerted to a higher risk patient, 
I think in that setting, all they should realize is that component malposition is likely less forgiving in that scenario. And so they have to be very thoughtful about being able to accurately execute a target. I think secondly, the tenant that I tend to drive home is they need to, in that setting, you know, under restoration of offset is far less forgiving. So if you're going to obsess about, you know, parameters down to the millimeter, like, you know, restoring someone's offset, I think this is the patient where you should double down on that philosophy. And then third, I think, you know, if you're someone who selectively uses large diameter femoral heads, like 36 and 40 millimeters, and certainly selectively uses due mobilities, I think these types of patients are the ones to consider that. And so independent of specific targets and, you know, this whole notion of patient-specific safe zones, I think those three principles will help any orthopedic surgeon who's, you know, newly approaching this topic, perhaps stay out of trouble when they encounter these types of higher risk patients. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think the actionable information is actually determined by how much information you're willing to find out, right? If you're just taking a AP pelvis x-ray and you see a lumbar sputum to the sacrum, there's actually not much actionable information there other than you probably should use a large head and you should probably increase the offset or make sure you don't under offset that hip, just like Nate just said. If you get a standing lateral, then you know where the pelvis is. If they're fused, you know it's stiff, right? Because it's obviously fused in a large segment. You, you know you need more antiversion, but you need to know on a standing lateral where that pelvis is. Then you have a little bit more actionable information. Now you can adjust your antiversion based on those targets. So it really comes down to what are you willing to invest in to figure out what the full story is and then actionable info and targets after that. I mean, if we're really collecting all this information on all of our patients and it's so specific, should we be really looking into, like you said, an actionable scenario here? Are we, should we be using, you know, more advanced technology to place these cups into the position where we really think they should go? I mean, I think it's, it's hard to imagine going through getting all this information and identifying patients at risk and still for most community orthopedic surgeons to go in and try to place a cup into the position we think it is without the help of robotic assistance or other different ways of doing it. What are your thoughts on that? You know, Nate said it perfectly. He said that the higher, the more stiff these are, the harder these are, the tighter your safe zone is, right? There is no forgiveness. So yeah, we've actually published multiple papers now on the stiffer, more deformed it is, the more you use technology, you actually lower your dislocation rates back down to to close to normal, you know, from six to seven to 10% down to 1% by using that information. I mean, are you selectively using robotics or other technology to help you hit that safe zone? Are you using it on everybody or how are you deciding if you are or aren't going to use it? So in my, in my practice, it's just a routine part of the practice. It's 100%. We're getting, you know, hip spine workups, but all advanced technology to execute those plans. Just very similar to Vigdorchek, I went from selectively using technology to then realizing, you know, if I have a simple tool that's relatively cost effective, you know, why not use it for my lower risk patients? It actually made, you know, my implementation of that technology more efficient for the higher risk patients. And I use that increased efficiency to justify the small, but I guess real increased cost of disposables. So I use it now for everybody. I think if anything, going down the rabbit hole on this topic, 
has really gave me an appreciation for the utility of novel technologies that allow you to execute a plan within three degrees and two millimeters of what you set out to do. So I guess Brock, to answer your question, I, I now use it. And I think me and John are some of the bigger proponents of these types of technologies because of this subject. Are you guys anterior, posterior, or both? So I, I started ABMS, which one would ask, there's not really a dislocation in that from that approach, at least a quantifiable one. And then I went to posterior lateral. I still don't have any dislocations because I was many, or at least dislocation was not a problem in my practice. And then now I'm, I'm dabbling with direct anterior. So we're all arthroplasty yeah. surgeons. None of us have any dislocations. Exactly. If you search hard enough and follow long enough, they all do. Because <laughs> dislocations from a DA approach actually, which led is what led me down this rabbit hole initially about eight years ago. Probably because they're all standing posterior pelvic tilts and yeah, you recognize it. Exactly. And John, they all, I, I think, happen. And probably because their supine x-rays did not look like their standing x-rays. So there was that, that was that group of patients. Well, I think they also happen later. So I think it's easier for DA surgeons yeah. to realize that they're still getting about a 1 in 200 dislocation rate. Because they tend to happen, for whatever reason, at least a year out. Um, That's a, the door paper you guys publish, right? right weight yeah. instability because of the spine deformities is the progression. Yeah, but on average, these anterior yeah. hips you know, become unstable far after the posterior ones. It's interesting, though. I think, Brock, I'm a posterior approach surgeon, so I think that maybe the anterior approach may be more forgiving to not putting the cups in the right positions. Maybe more forgiving if you under-restore their offset or do something biomechanically not correct during surgery. But if you do a posterior approach and you do it well, and we have technologies to do it well, your dislocation rates can be the same, one in a thousand. And we've just published on 13,000 cases looking at manual versus computer navigation versus robotics, breaking it down by hip spine categories. You know, if you have a normal spine, you're one in a thousand dislocation rate. If you have a fused spine, you're one in a hundred, so one percent. If you had a crazy spine deformity, you used to be about 6.8%. And um, now we've gotten that back down to 1% by thoughtful, careful planning. So I think is it's regardless of what approach you do, you should do it well. And there's there are things out there that make you do it well. You've got to remember that anterior approach with fluoroscopy, that's using a tool to make yourself better. So I kind of have a question there on, on technology. And you're mentioning that there are certain modalities we can use that aren't available to everyone and they can drastically improve the stability of these hips. In these patients who are extremely high risk, who may present to someone who doesn't have these technologies available, do you think that, you know, that should be someone who is able to identify an extremely high risk patient, like, you, you know, even up to 10% or more, as you mentioned, and maybe should they seek out someone who has that technology available to them? What do you think the role is for that? Kevin, I, you know you're asking a very provocative question. I know. I'm trying to. I'm trying to ask it in the most politically sensitive <laughs> way possible. A very plain vanilla answer, but I think this goes back to the basics. You know, at the end of the day, a lot of us use technology for knees and hips, but you can't forget the basics. And I think if you still rely on some of the fundamental principles of arthroplasty, and rely on anatomic landmarks like the TAL, the anterior wall you know, the superlateral rim relative to where you've templated an acetabular component. I think, and you acknowledge that, you know, if you identify a high-risk hip spine patient and you know the direction of malposition that can get you into trouble, I think it's still possible for a thoughtful surgeon who does not have access to these technologies to execute a hip well 
and minimize our complication rate. So that's my plan vanilla answer. But I see what you try to do there. You try to bait me. <laughs> Unsuccessful. Unfortunately, though, Kevin, the answer is usually I'll just put a dual mobility in everybody. Right. And yes, that's forgiving. And yes, that probably saves you dislocations, but that doesn't come without some potential negatives, which are corrosion, you know, neck notching, intraprosthetic dislocation. So, you know, unfortunately, people will default to a dual mobility for everybody type of situation. That's not necessarily the right answer. But like Nate said, we're not asking for too much technology. I'm asking for one x ray at minimum, right? One standing lateral. And like you said, very thoughtful surgery. You can actually do everything you need with just that and anatomic placement. In these patients that have uh, potential for instability, what are your thoughts on some of the newer polyethylenes that are thinner? You, know, you can get to 36 millimeter heads at a 48 millimeter cup and, and whatnot. Do you have any particular problem with that in your practice? Are you okay going to a 36 at a 48 with a new generation of polyethylene? Or what advice would you give to some of the people that don't have any technology? Would you be okay with that trade-off? Brock, I think you ask a very thoughtful question. And I think it's one that comes up, you know, almost quarterly at our arthroplasty conferences. But, you know, how thin is too thin? And to be 100% transparent, I don't know the answer to that question. I, I will go 36 at a 50 cup. Uh, and I accept a 4.3 millimeter thickness. I, I don't know where the lower bound of that limit is safely. I don't think the FDA approves anything as thin as 3.7 or less than 3.7. But I, I know every material property, there's, you know, limit. So that's kind of where I've put my limit at. I know everyone has their different barometer. Young age leads me to, you know, if I'm doing an osteonecrosis in a 30-year-old active male, I usually won't go with that thinnest couple. I'll accept a few millimeters of thicker poly. But I've not dabbled with anything thinner than 4.3, and I don't know if that's the right answer, and I don't know if we have data yet to guide us. John, I'm really curious to hear your thought on this question. So the only data we have to guide us are the two Mayo Clinic studies, right? Large heads, small cups. Rob Truesdale won an award on this, and they had great survivorship over beyond 10 years with that particular construct. So I think the risk of dislocation going from to a 32 ball from a 36 is much higher than the risk of the poly breaking, especially if you put the parts in correctly and you don't have component impingement. So I don't have any problem using a 48 and a 36. The minimum thickness in my construct is 3.9, but you got to remember everybody's measuring from a different spot. Some are measuring at the pole, some are at the 45, some are at the rim. Um, so it depends on locking mechanisms. Uh, we have not seen any issues with this over greater than 10 years, probably even longer than that. So I'm okay with it. I actually prefer as big a head as possible in these higher risk situations. John, do you, would you still use a 36 and a 50 cup and say someone without any risk factors for instability if they were in their 30s and you know had an osteonecrosis type picture? Or does that lead you towards accepting a thicker polyethylene? You know, it, AVN in a young person actually is an increased risk for instability because they got hyper, they're kind of hyper flexible, right? So they've got more excessive range of motion. So I'm okay with it. I don't, I don't know if that hip's going to wear out in 30 or 40 years uh, versus 60. It, it's kind of hard to know. Yeah. You know, so I, I don't I, have a problem with it. Yeah, I guess the Mayo Clinic 
data does give me some comfort, but I think it took us the entire Australian registry to try to accurately delineate a relationship between head size and trunniosis. And so even though there are smaller series that give me solace, I still get squeamish sometimes. Not squeamish, maybe that's not the right answer, but I am still concerned about the long-term durability of some of these thinner polys that they haven't been in vivo for 20, 30, 40 years. And if I'm going to put a, a liner in someone that long and I don't need that large size, sometimes I'll kind of compromise and use a... That depends, right? If you can do a good hip replacement and, and almost always you can avoid prosthetic impingement where the neck hits the poly, if you can avoid that at the locking mechanism, you know, 3.9 mils of poly should last you... 39 years or more if you're below the osteolysis threshold of 0.1, right? So your 4.3 should last you 43 years and potentially more than that because we're not seeing osteolysis after 23 years with crosslink poly. So I think you're getting at least 40. Yeah, I'm not worried about linear wear or even... Uh, you're worried about mechanical impaction. That's yeah. why I said that if you avoid prosthetic impingement, then maybe you're not getting any of that mechanical irritation, at least in flexion internal. Maybe you're getting some in extension external. Um, well, you bring up a good point, John. I mean, we, we don't know the natural history of the sagittal alignment of every patient's pelvis. You know, true. most of it, you know, people are going to hyperextend as they, you know, lose their lordosis and go to posterior tilt. So, right. And, and the few case reports where these liners have fractured in vivo have been from edge loading. And so I think as the human pelvis tilts posteriorly as we age, I think. You know, a thirty-year-old's well, pelvis. Yeah, I guess we're talking about. You don't have a crystal ball, but somebody told me once that a dislocation early is your fault, and <laughs> uh, poly wearing out in thirty or forty years—that's the company's fault. Fair so. point. Fair point. <laughs> and, and and you know, to just add a book into this philosophical conversation, I use forty and thirty-sixes all the time. So I mean, right. I'm just talking about a, a theoretical scenario where I'd consider using a slightly thicker poly. Yeah, I think the answer may change too if you ask the Europeans and the Australians, right? They use a ton of 32 millimeter heads if you look at some of the corporate data on utilization. Awesome. Well, I think with that, Brock, we can go on to introducing a second article here talking about some of these spinal pelvic risk factors in patients who are unstable postoperatively. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump right in. I mean, we've kind of already been talking about this and a lot of it just kind of makes sense and now it's being able to really define some of these parameters but the paper high prevalence of spinal pelvic risk factors in patients with post-operative hip dislocations out of hss and this really kind of focuses on looking at different spinal pelvic parameters as far as deformity and measurements go in patients that had instability so they looked at 48 patients with instability following a primary total hip arthroplasty, and they compared it to a uh, controlled cohort of around 9,400 patients. They used lateral x-rays and the flex seated positions. Uh, those were used to assess pelvic tilt and lumbar lordosis, and CT scans were used to measure pelvic incidence and mass tabular cup orientation. Um, and it came down to showing that really, after all the measurements were done, excessive standing uh, posterior tilt, low lumbar flexion, and severe sagittal spinal deformity are more prevalent on unstable total hips, which you know goes along exactly what we've already been talking about and how preoperative screening of these parameters combined with appropriate planning and implant selection 
would go a long ways in helping identify and reduce the prevalence of dislocation through probably a lot of the things we've kind of been discussing already. So I know a lot of people kind of their eyes start to glaze over when you start talking about all the different combinations of the letters and less than and greater than and what you should be going. And so kind of give us some insight into kind of some of the information out of this paper, if you don't mind. Sure. This is one of my papers. I'll jump in. It's from a constellation of papers that we wrote, right? The first one being, if you look at all the revisions that we're doing and you look at the cut positions, First, half of the revisions that we've done were completely preventable if the first one was just done better. Okay, And out of that half, half of them were poor acetabular component positioning. Now, Monday morning quarterbacking, we know about the hip-spine relationship. Now we can make those changes. So that's basically 25% that of all revision hips we do are completely avoidable if you just put your cups in the right spot. Now you got to ask me, where's the right spot to put them? Right. So the next constellation of papers were – if we revised rev- dislocating hips, so doing revisions for dislocating hips, we published this in BJJ, 111 dislocating hips. If you did a hip spine analysis on them, your risk of dislocation after that revision was 3% versus 16% if you did not do a hip spine analysis. So clearly that you're looking at cups and you're figuring out why you need to revise them. And you think it's okay if you're just looking at a supine x-ray, but when you get a hip spine analysis, you understand what's wrong with that particular cup. And now this particular paper is trying to identify risk factors in all those revision hips that you're seeing, how many of them had spinal pelvic risk factors. And the number one thing that we talked about is having a spine deformity. Because half the things you just mentioned, those higher risk factors, posterior pelvic tilt, right? That's looking at an AP pelvis and seeing an outlet view. That's looking at a standing lateral and seeing a posterior pelvic tilt. That was the number one risk factor for dislocation, probably because your cup's not in the right spot because the body is making this weird deformity for you. That goes along with having a PILL greater than 20. That's a severe spine deformity. That and posterior pelvic tilt are basically the same thing, right? They go hand in hand together. And the other one is just having a stiff spine, so a spine fusion like the first paper we talked about. So we know that if you see a dislocating hip, you probably should look for some sort of abnormality for that pelvis is. I mean, that's kind of the gist of this whole paper is that dislocators are going to have this. You want to take that one step further, try to figure it out before you ever do their first hip replacement so they don't become a dislocating hip because that's what we're trying to really get at. Who's the highest risk people? How do we do something differently during surgery? John, just a question for you, and maybe this will be a great segue into the next paper. But first of all, I thought this article, like, you know, all of your articles is very illuminating. Um, and, you know, one thing I, I thought that was distinct from some of the other papers that have looked at a consecutive series of dislocators was you guys identified spinal pelvic abnormalities in two-thirds of the patients, whereas, you know, other series out of, you know, South Korea and, you know, even one of the series out of Keck, you know, it was closer to 90%. But, you know, I think it's because, you know, we use different, I guess, metrics to define high risk. And some of them can overcall things and give you a, a more sensitive barometer of high risk, but at the expense of perhaps, you know, undercalling or, or missing a third of patients that do dislocate. But do you have any insight into that? Or are we going to just, or am I opening the can of worms that's going to be opened in the next paper? Well, a little bit of both. I mean, 
you're right. We need to figure out what truly means high risk. Yeah. Right. How do you, what x-ray do you take? Standing, sitting, relaxed sitting, flex sitting. How do you determine? And maybe it's you define risk factors for that series of x-rays that you're going to take, right? Because relaxed sitting x-rays have different risk factors than flex sitting x-rays. And it's like picking a diagnostic test. You got to pick a sensitivity, sensi- specificity and sensitivity that you're good with. You got to figure out how many false negatives, how many false positives you're okay to have, and then set diagnostic thresholds for that. Well, why don't we just go ahead and also reference the next paper because it ties in so well with this one. I think it would help everybody kind of understand the other paper we were going to talk about was the sacral slope change from standing to a relaxed seated grossly overpredicts the presence of a stiff spine. So I know in a lot of the different meetings we've gone to or talked about it, they give you a lot of different parameters on how to measure and maybe how to identify someone with a stiff spine. And according to this paper here, we may also be overpredicting who has a stiff spine because maybe we're not measuring the right right things. Instead of using a relaxed sitting position, we should be using more of a flexed seated position to measure and see what kind of mobility the spine really has when you're maximally flexed. So let's add that to kind of the mix that we've already been talking about here. So I think it gets back to Nate's question, right? What are the consequences of over or under predicting something in this particular space, right? We're talking about stiff spines. If you under predict the stiff spine and you don't put enough antiversion in your cup or use a big enough head, you're going to have a dislocation. Okay. If you over predict and you call more people stiff than they're not, you're going to use bigger heads more. You're going to antivert a little bit more and you may decrease your dislocation rate. Now what's the consequence of a bigger head? Maybe you're using a thinner poly and you get mechanical breakage over time. What's the consequence of over antiverting? Maybe that 1% of the patient population starts becoming more spine deformed so that the excess of antiversion becomes even more antiversion. Then you start having late anterior instability. So really, you're robbing Peter a little bit to pay Paul a lot or robbing Peter a lot to pay Paul a little. You're kind of finding the right balance, yeah. right? It's And it's hard to... I, I hate the title for this paper. Sacral slope grossly overpredicts the presence of a stiff spine, when in reality your definition of a stiff spine is only based on your flex seated X-ray. So you're kind of you're doomed from the start because 100% of your stiff spines can only be found on flex seated. So you don't really know that that's even the true definition of a stiff spine, because arguably it's not really. So we need to find a better or correct definition of what's a stiff spine and then correctly predict who's high risk. And I think looking at all these different parameters is helping us get there closer and closer. Yeah, I think, John, you put that very, very succinctly. And I think I I just want to underscore because I think Jonathan and I I actually agree 100% with what John just said. You know, right now we don't know what constitutes a high-risk patient truly based on spinal pelvic parameters. We're using a lot of proxies like PIL mismatch and a decrease in sagittal lumbar lordosis changes between two postural x-rays. But really, I, I think those are all proxies for a high-risk phenotype where by virtue of someone's spinal pelvic degenerative disease, they're forced to you know, supraphysiologically 
move their hip in the sagittal plane that, you know, can prompt either bone on bone impingement or implant on bone impingement. And uh, I, I really think, you know, more data needs to be done on this topic because I don't know, to John's point, where to move that barometer for sensitivity and specificity. You got to remember, guys, this has been my first paper was in 2015, right? With patients collected from 2013, 2014. So that was seven and eight years ago where people, a hip surgeon, they could care less about a spine x-ray. So now you're starting to introduce all these terms that nobody's ever heard of, like lumbar flexion, a flex-seated x-ray that nobody's ever gotten in their life. When in reality, we needed a hip surgeon to identify, A, there is a spine above your hip. <laughs> B, you should get a spine x-ray and remember what pelvic incidence is, maybe. Oh, wait, that was too complicated. Let's just get a sitting x-ray sitting. Because like Nate said, we couldn't figure out how to get a good flex seated x-ray, right? Even yeah. Dor's original description of his seated x-rays, he was looking for the pubic symphysis. So he made the patients flex their hips to beyond 90 degrees so you could see a pubic symphysis because the femurs weren't in the way. So it's been a journey from my standpoint. And, you know, I've been on this journey the whole time of getting people to recognize that there is a spine and how to get an x-ray. So then we can slowly get them to more complicated topics like let's get a flex-seated x-ray and figure out what's the best way to measure spine stiffness. I'm happy that 15 to 20% of AUKUS membership are getting hip spine x-rays now. That's a tremendous win. And now we can start leading them into a little bit more complicated topics. Because Brock, Brock, you said it best, like people's eyes glaze over the second we started talking about pelvic incidents and sacral slopes and the 37 different classification systems for this. Like it's not, it was not easy. And part of that's, you know, on us for writing all the papers using different languages. You know, we had to write a paper in BJJ. We, I got Larry Dore, me, the Australian guys together at Academy one year. And we wrote a paper on what, let's agree on some terminology we're going to use to describe this topic. Because pelvic tilt can be measured two different ways. And the literature said pelvic tilt in every paper, and you didn't have any idea how it's measured, and you still have no idea how they're measured because half the papers refer to spine surgeon pelvic tilt and half refer to anteropelvic plane. So we literally had to write a paper on let's talk the same language. That was 2016 Academy. We agreed to honor Dr. Dorr because he came up with those, and it kind of makes sense. Well, one of his residents at the time came up with it, but yeah, anyway. Was that you, Nate? <laughs> it was me and Steffel. Nice. Yeah. No, because, you know, Dora was brilliant and, uh, in that he realized this was important. He wasn't always the best at distilling a very complex idea into something that, you know, you could relate. So he his initial nomenclature for these different phenotypes was very, very confusing. And so, yeah, you know, Michael Steffel, who was one of Menegini's mm -hmm. fellows, and I, you know, with myself, you know, we kind of came up with just – we were trying to distill this topic to medical students back in 2013. So, yeah, you know, medical students don't understand PILL. So we literally just start saying stuck standing, stuck sitting. And we, you know, just like Jonathan, they, we appreciate these two divergent phenotypes. And that led us down two very different pathways. Well, let me ask you all this. Since there's been such a focus kind of building on this back since starting back in 2015, in not necessarily your practices, but in the institutions that you're at, when, now that you've started paying more attention to this, have you seen an actual clinical change in the number of, I guess, even 
primary dislocations compared to before when this was starting to be a topic just anecdotally or there even any kind of papers out there yet kind of saying yeah this does make a difference we've seen dislocation rates drop so john probably has good data out of hss because you know i i think it's really cool that offset paper you wrote and even your other paper that you wrote with Skulko. I will say empirically, and this is less scientific, but from USC standpoint, I would say definitely it's dropped our dislocation rate. You know, even the surgeons, I'm one of two surgeons who gets these x-rays universally. The other half don't, and they get them selectively. But even in their selective utilization, when they identify a high-risk patient, you know, they have a heightened sense of awareness about avoiding component malposition, and they'll have a lower threshold to use a high-offset stem and to do mobility articulation. And so I think this practice or at least this topic that has brought this subject to the attention of other orthopedic surgeons that don't do this for everyone the way me and John do, has at least lowered their dislocation rate. So I think institutionally our, our rate's gone down. Yeah, we, we wrote a cool editorial about this in the BJJ. Basically, we've been on a journey to lower dislocation rates since the 1970s, right? Started with Lewinick Safe Zone. His dislocation rate was 3%. Then came, the next was a posterior soft tissue repair, that brought dislocation rates down to about 2%. And this 1.5%, 2% dislocation rate has been pretty constant because out of Mayo Clinic, they looked at 7,000 patients. HSS looked at 9,000 patients. Both had about 2% dislocation rates in all comers. And those are recent papers, 2015, 2016. Then came large femoral heads that dropped dislocation rates a little bit further. Then came... You know, using dual mobility or computer navigation, that drops dislocation rates even further. And now the next step is hip spine analysis. So the only data that I have looking at these kind of things are looking at our historic cases, that 13,000 case paper that we just finished up writing, looking at manual versus computer nav versus robotics and finding dislocation rates kind of decreasing as you start incrementally increasing the use of larger heads, hip spine analysis, targeting cut positions, and then actually hitting those targets. So this has been a long journey, and we're just making the next incremental leap, I think, to drop the dislocation rates. Kind of building on that, so what do you think the next incremental change will be? What do you think is the next kind of breakthrough that pushes us even one step further into increasing stability? Reverse total hips. <laughs> Have you seen that? Dude, it's coming. Somebody's going to try it. Oh, John, it's it's here. They have been putting humans, and I think 100% of them have failed so far. So, yeah, jokes aside. Let's take a 99.8% successful <laughs> exactly. operation and turn it into a 99.8% successful, <laughs> unsuccessful operation. Perfect. Great idea. Hey, Brock, I'll say to answer that question, though, I think getting more and more people to acknowledge that this is a real phenomenon, even if instability is not a problem in their practice. And what I mean by that is, you know, this is still a real phenomenon that affects DA surgeons, direct lateral surgeons, posterior surgeons that they should be mindful of. It just, it's hard for any singular human to appreciate the difference empirically between 1% prevalence rate and a 0.5% prevalence rate. But I think any dislocation that we can avoid for our patients is worth fighting for. And I think getting more people to adopt the philosophy that at least this matters, you know, we're studying the sagittal kinematics of the human body and the hip dislocates and moves in the sagittal plane. So, so Kevin, 
there's any technology that can uh... there is there is guys it's all over the internet currently right i think that first of all the, the percentage of people who use technology in our country is about five to ten percent for hips right so it's still shockingly low so that's going to increase over the next five to ten years and then the next thing that getting back to brock's comment that people's eyes glazing over ai is going to measure these x-rays for you tell you what to do and then robots are going to execute the plans for you right that's where we're going in the next five to ten years where people don't have to think about it they're just going to have we have to build ai models that are generalizable that are robust that can basically do all the thinking for us because then people don't know they don't really need to understand it they can if they want to learn, but I think that's where we're going. AI plus robotics, five to 10 years, um, and a lot of these things are solved and increases the adoption of technology. So chat, T-H-A. <laughs> chat, T-H-A. <laughs> that's perfect. Hey, John, I have a question for you. This is philosophical yeah. too, because I, I know you like to keep your finger on the pulse. Do you think robotics versus computer navigation, do you think both of those technologies will proliferate at the same rate for hips or do you think one's going to become the dominant technology it depends on the accuracy right if we can get away from ct and get yeah. accuracy equal to ct i think we could probably get there without robots but i think with automation i think robots eventually win because they get smaller cheaper and easier to use potentially without ct but that's probably five to ten years away from what i understand just from all this it's really difficult to really identify every at-risk patient out there because there's no clear set of parameters and the easiest thing to do if we want to identify everybody is to basically we should be getting x-rays on everybody's lumbar spine don't try to pick out just because someone has some hardware that means they have a stiff spine because there are lots of stiff spines out there that don't have hardware and then i guess we just need to decide what the best parameter to identify the most at risk patients are and do what's in our power and what we have available to us to really be careful with those patients. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I would add is that the most, I think the highest, highest at risk patient is the one with the big deformed spine where the pelvis is not standing straight up and down, right? A big posterior pelvic tilt spine deformity. The next highest risk is probably the large segment spine fusions. Like these guys are saying, you know, the ones that are fused to the pelvis, which are usually the longer segment ones. Those are the highest, highest risk. And bare minimum, standing lateral x-ray to know where the pelvis is. All right. Well, we appreciate it, guys. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thank you. We hope all of our listeners enjoyed today's episode. Again, we'll have the links to all these articles found in the description if any of you would like to reference. If you have any feedback on the episode or a particular topic you'd like to hear discussed, please email us at jawaythecut at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us for the Journal of Arthroplasty's The Cut. Visit AUKUS.org to learn more about how members of American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.